Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 68, The Great I Am. Okay, well, this episode contains part two of the debate between Dr. James White and Patrick Novice on the deity of Christ. Uh, in episode 67, The Firstborn of Creation, which contains part one of the debate, we listened to Patrick Novice's opening statement and then James White's opening statement. And then we listened to them interact on John 12:41 and on 1 Corinthians 8, verses 5 to 6. In this episode, you'll listen to them interact on uh, Hebrews chapter 1, Colossians 1, 15 to 17, and the I am, or ego a me, statements of, Je- of Jesus in the Gospel of John. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and move right into part two of their debate. You're the precious holy lamb. You are the great I am. Hold on, you are the great I am. Who are you? Okay, so with that out of the way, let's move on to our discussion of Hebrews chapter 1, and once again, we'll return to James' opening. So when you're ready, I'll start your seven-minute timer. Thank you very much. Hebrews chapter 1, we can't even read uh, all of it in only seven minutes, so I can only focus upon the key testimony in this uh, tremendous text uh, to the absolute deity of Christ, beginning at verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Remember, the book of Hebrews is an apologetic to the Jewish people. There's nothing to go back to. So right from the start, the author is going to be identifying for us who Jesus is and his supremacy, everything else, including to all angels in verse 5. When it says he is the radiance of his glory, has God's glory ever been without radiance? Then it says he is the character taste hupastaseos. It is impossible for a mere creature to be described as the exact representation of God's nature. Why? Well, because God is eternal. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. And so if you're going to present a Jesus who is a creature, you're going to have to redefine character to something lesser, to, to a something that is not an exact reproduction. And I think that's what uh, Mr. Novice will be forced to do. We'll see in his in his presentation. Then it is said, to which the angels did he ever say, verse 5. So he's separating him from the angels. The highest creatures in the Jewish hierarchy of of, of order, the highest creatures, he is above these angels. And when he brings the prototokos, the one having preeminence, into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now notice, Jesus was worshipped by angels before this time, but here in his incarnation, the angels are even to worship him in that context. That's one of the things we have to keep in mind is that there are different elements at time periods in Jesus' life, his pre-incarnation, during the incarnation, and exaltation afterwards. Verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. If that is in the context, not of just, well, you know, there were beings that were called theosts in the Old Testament, and they were lesser, and Jesus is lesser like that. But if he is the exact character of verse 3, that has to inform our reading of theos in verse 8. But I think 
the the most telling by far is the fact that Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens, the work of your hands, they will perish, but you remain. They will all become old like a garment, like a mantle, you roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. That is a citation directly from Psalm 102, 25 through 27. And we simply have to ask ourselves the question, how could this writer, whether it be Paul or whoever it was, nobody knows, Luther was right, God knows who wrote Hebrews, but this inspired text, how could anyone write those words who knows the Old Testament and apply them to a creature? These in Psalm 102, 25 through 27, if that is not about the eternal, unchanging nature of Yahweh, there is no description of Yahweh's eternal, unchanging nature anywhere whatsoever. It has to be found there. And so here you have Yahweh being contrasted with the creation. And I've actually seen people, and I think Mr. Novice quoted people who, in his book, who are arguing, yeah, well, th- this is just future eternity. This is, this is down the road. That's not what the original context was. Was the writer to the Hebrews misusing and abusing Psalm 102 to make a lesser application? How could he take a greater application of the unchanging God, the creator of all things in the Old Testament, apply it to the Son in Hebrews 1, but mean it in a lesser sense, especially when he said he is the character, the outflow of his glory. He is called God. He is worshipped by the angels. And here in verse 10, the very things that make Yahweh Yahweh are applied to the Son. Clearly then, what we have here, is at the very beginning of the book, the establishment of the absolutely exalted nature of this one. Now, if Jesus is but the agent of creation and himself a created being, so I'm not sure how he's the agent of his own creation, so there would have to be another agent of the creation, or or he'd have to do the Jehovah's Witness thing, and well, Yahweh only created one thing directly, and that was Michael the Archangel, then through him create everything else, and put other into, in, into Colossians 1. We'll, we'll find out when we get to Colossians 1, I guess. That is the next subject. But the point is that if this is just a, a, a an agent of creation who is himself created, then the application of Psalm 102, 25 through 27 to him would be absolutely dishonest on the part of the writer to the Hebrews. And what's more important, the Hebrews who would be opposing the Christian faith would pick up on it immediately. Because the Psalter is the hymn book of the Jewish people. And they knew what these Psalms were about. And they knew that in Psalm 102, 25 through 27, you have Yahweh being contrasted with all of these things. How can those words be applied to a creature who is on the far side of the creator creation gulf? I submit to you, that it cannot be done. You cannot apply these words to a mere creature. Now, as we look at these texts, once again, I recognize my Trinitarian presuppositions. And so I want to look at these and I want to ask myself the question, okay, is there some way that this writer could have meant something less? I want to examine my presuppositions. I have to challenge Mr. Navas to do the same thing. If you're going to tell us that Psalm 102, 25 through 27 was originally about Yahweh and his unchanging nature, his immutability. 
how then can you apply that to a creature who has not eternally existed? If you have not eternally existed, you are mutable because you came into existence at a point in time. I challenge those, those Unitarian presuppositions and as such lay before you Hebrews chapter 1 as yet another of the large amount of evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ and the reason why Christians have believed in that deity from the very beginning. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, James. Patrick, if you're ready to go, I'll start your seven-minute timer when you begin speaking. Okay, thank you, James. I'll go right back to the beginning and try to cover as many points um, <clears throat> in the text that I'm able to. Uh, the, the text says, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many ways, <clears throat> in various ways uh, in the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the worlds or ages. First point that I would uh, make is that just as clearly as the prophets are distinguished from the God who spoke in them, so the son is plainly distinguished, plainly presented as someone distinct from the God who spoke through him. So just as we would not identify the prophets as God, obviously, it seems to me uh, quite uh, you know, remarkable to suggest that, well, in this text, Jesus is being identified as God when he's so plainly distinguished from God, just as clearly as the prophets are distinguished from God. Now, of course, Trinitarians would respond, well, we're not identifying or saying that Jesus is himself the Father, and what they really mean by that is the Father, the first person of the Trinity. So and there, therein you see the, the, the degree of theology and the presuppositions that are read into the text, instead of just letting the language speak for itself, at least a common sense, ordinary understanding of language would not lead anyone to believe that Jesus is God, but rather the one in whom God has, spoke, uh, has spoken in the last days. The text also identifies Jesus as the one whom God appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the worlds or ages. Now, James White made a point about Jesus... Um, being the agent of creation, and it almost seemed like he was suggesting that, well, Jesus is not the agent of creation, um, and he could correct me if I'm wrong on that, but that's precisely what the text tells us. It does not say that Jesus is the creator, but rather the one through whom God created. That's exactly what I'm saying. Then it goes on to say he is either the reflection or the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation or reproduction or copy of his very being. This is another text that um, we can make the point that, well, if, if the author of Hebrews wanted us to believe that Jesus was God, why does he tell us that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being? That's not the type of language that communicates that Jesus is himself God. Now, James Wyatt also tries to make an argument that, well, if Jesus is a copy or an exact reproduction of God's being, well, since God's being is eternal, well, therefore, Jesus must be eternal as well. Now, <clears throat> that doesn't convince me because, I mean, in, in the ordinary world, if we're going to say that something is a copy of something else or a reproduction of something else, we would never argue or conclude that, well, this copy uh, must carry the same uh, duration or age as the original of which it's a copy. of. It just doesn't work in the real world. Um, but I would say that's the word character, which literally means a, a, re a reproduction, is the very term that 
proves the point that Jesus is, in fact, not the almighty God. Um, and the other point that needs to be made is that, <clears throat> which is really an undeniable point, okay, that if something is a reproduction of something else, the reproduction or copy, by definition, is not the original, okay? And if <clears throat> Jesus is a copy of God's being, he's not the original being of God, but rather a reproduction or a copy of it. So that's the question I would like to ask James White. Is a reproduction the original? Okay. If the reproduction is the original, if we could say that, then it's not a reproduction. Um, he goes on to say, uh, let's see, uh, he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And it says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or I will be a father and he will be my son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, that's a text I absolutely affirm and agree with. But again, notice that the text says, God said, let all the angels worship him. So what that tells us is that the worship and the honor and the glory that is given to Jesus is that which God has authorized, okay? And that's not a point that I'm simply making up or even an inference. The text specifically says, God said, let the angels worship him. And if God has authorized the worship of his son, Jesus, then that's something that I accept as a Christian, okay? Um, I'll skip on just to verse 8 because this is a key text as well. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, traditionally, this text has been used to prove that Jesus is himself the almighty God because it says, your throne, O God, and it's talking about Jesus. But notice that in the very next verse, Jesus is spoken of as one who has a God above him or to him. Now, Trinitarians are traditionally going to appeal to the, the doctrine of Christ having two natures, and they'll agree. They'll say, yes, the Son can have the Father as his God, but only, according to Trinitarians, in a sense that applies to his human nature or his human self. But this text explicitly contradicts that. In other words, what the text clearly indicates is that even in Jesus' God status, the Father is still his God, and thus he cannot be God in the absolute, unqualified sense. Why? Because the Father, the Most High God, does not have one who is a God above him. But Jesus, even as God, does. So it doesn't help for Trinitarians to suggest, well, the Father is Jesus God, but only in a sense that can apply to his humanity when this text explicitly shows that even in the context of his Godship or Godhood, the Father is still his God, thereby qualifying the Godship that Jesus possesses. And in reference to Hebrews uh, 1.10, where the author quotes from Psalm 102, the text about creatorship, okay, um, all you have to do is go back to uh, Hebrews 1.2, which says that God is the creator, <clears throat> Jesus is the one through whom God created, oh. and thus the, the, the language I, from... Am I done? Yeah. You, uh, okay. Sorry. Okay, James, your three-minute rebuttal. 
Well, once again, what we just got was a, a lengthy series of Unitarian presuppositions, but we did not get exegesis of the text. Um, we just heard, for example, well, well uh, the sons distinguished from the father. Yes, the Trinity distinguishes the son from the father very clearly. Um, he's the agent of creation, yes. And if he's the agent of creation, that actually does make him the creator, unless he himself is created and he is not created. Uh, we had the term character. And, and he says, well, that's not the kind of language that communicates that Jesus is God. So if Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature, that means in normal language that he's a creature. See, this is, this is very dangerous, I think, and I, I just, I, I get the feeling Mr. Novice does not see how he is, is completely controlled by his Unitarian presuppositions. Because when he says, well, the copy, if it's just, if it's just a reproduction, then that's not as old as the original. We're not talking about a photocopier here. That's obviously not what the writer of the Hebrews is talking about because he just described him as the outflow of his glory and he never would have believed that God was not glorious or that God's glory was not known. Jesus is the means by which that glory is made known. But here's the point. If you follow Mr. Novice's thinking here, you just made eternality something that is no longer definitional of God's nature because it's not a part of the character. You don't have omnipotence being de- definitional of his character anymore, or omniscience, or any of these things. You can just get rid of all that stuff and say, well, he's, he's, he's a reproduction, but he's, it's, it, it's, it's really, really bad one. And it isn't actually representative of his nature. It's only a part of his nature, as if that was the argument of the author. I'm sorry, that's clearly not the intention. Remember, Hebrews is an apologetic argument, and the writer of the Hebrews is going to be very sensitive to places where he does not give a proper and appropriate argument that's going to flow. Let's let Hebrews 1 flow. Radiance of his glory. Exact representation of his nature. Upholding all things. Does he uphold himself? If he's a creature, he'd have to be upholding himself. Upholding all things by the word of his power. And then when he enters into human flesh... We just we were just told the only reason Jesus is worshipped is not because he's the radiance of God's glory and not because he's the character and not because he upholds all things, but because God has authorized his worship. So what we have in this form of Unitarianism is God authorizing the worship of a super creature by angels. That's what we have here. And this is the argument that is, that is actually being presented by by the writer of the Hebrews. And he didn't get a chance to get to Hebrew the, the key text. And that is the application of Psalm 102, which is about the the unchanging nature of Yahweh to the Son. That really has to be dealt with. Okay, uh, Patrick, your three-minute rebuttal. Okay, I think James White said that in terms of the worship that the, the Son is given by the angels, that I was somehow suggesting that they they are not worshiping because he's him because he's the exact representation of God's being or the radiance of God's glory, and so on and so forth. I didn't say anything like that. Um, I agree that Jesus is worshipped by the angels for all those reasons. I was just simply pointing out what the text says, and it says that God said, let all the angels worship him. And all I said was that, that the, according to this text, God has authorized the worship of his son. And that's what the text specifically says. So God as God, as the sovereign Lord of all creation, he can authorize the worship of his son if he decides to do so, and he has according to the text. So that is why also, I would, as a Christian, 
would bow down and worship Jesus as the Son of God, as the one whom God has exalted, as the one through whom God created the world, and uh, everything else that's said about the Son in Hebrews chapter 1. Um, in terms of uh, the, the word character, um, I can only, again, reiterate, reemphasize the point that a copy or a reproduction is by definition not the original. And Jesus is said to be a copy of God's being. Now, according to James White, Jesus uh, and the Father are the same being. They, they share the same being. Um, that using the Greek word homoousios, that's the classical terminology. So another question I would have is why, if the author of Hebrews believed that Jesus' Jesus's being and God's being are the same being, well, why didn't he just say so? Why does he rather tell us that Jesus is a copy of God's being? Um, in terms of Hebrews uh, 1.10 and the author applying the, the creation text and the language about um, uh, immutability, I completely agree um, that that's what it implies or that's what it says. But again, I was trying to develop the point that I got cut off in terms of my time. But the author of Hebrews explicitly tells us that Jesus is the one through whom God created the worlds. So that's the sense in which the uh, author of Hebrews is able to apply that created creation text to Jesus. It's entirely appropriate given that he's the one through whom God created the worlds. But he's not the creator. He's not the source according to the author of Hebrews. God is the source. He is the creator. The son is the one through whom the creative works of God came into existence. And again, not according to me, but according to what the text explicitly says. And in terms of immutability, I absolutely agree that the son is... Um, immutable. The son is not going to change. He's going to live forever. Uh, according to the scriptures, uh, death no longer has any power over him. The death that he died once for all, he died once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God according to the scriptures. Okay. That's time. Patrick, uh, you have three minutes to cross-examine James. Okay. Dr. White, is a copy... <clears throat> The original? Uh, no. Can you say that a copy is the original? Uh, no, uh, but I don't believe that copy is a meaningful, a fully meaningful translation of character. Okay. What, what, what would be a meaningful translation in your opinion? Well, the, 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 the term was used in Koine Greek of, of a, a ring that would make an impression, an exact impression in wax. And this is talking about the fact that as he is the radiance of the glory of God, that is how God's glory has been perceived by man, in the same way, just as John expresses that he is the monogamous theos, he is the one who has exegeted the Father, it is the Son who is the exact representation of his nature. We can have an absolutely perfect, accurate knowledge of the nature of the Father because Jesus Christ is that character, taste, if he was not, if he is a lesser representation, then we cannot have certainty that we truly know who God is because the Son is the means by which God has revealed himself to us. Okay. Um, in reference to uh, Hebrews uh, 1.8, where the author quotes from Psalm 45 and he calls the Son God, um, <clears throat> can you speak to the issue that I raised about how Trinitarians would argue that, well, the Son has the Father as his God only in the sense that can be applied to humanity. Am I representing Trinitarianism correctly when I made that point? Uh, in the sense that the Son became incarnate and therefore worships the Father uh, as any uh, perfect man would have to do so, 
that would be true. And, of course, this is after verse 6 when it says he brings the firstborn into the world. Um, and so this would be an identification of Jesus with the term theos that is post-incarnational. So I wasn't sure what your uh, application at that point was. Okay. Well, my, well, let me ask you ask the question this way. Does Jesus, as God, in his God status, have the Father as his God, in your view? If you're talking about pre-incarnationally, then the relationship of the Father and the Son, while eternal, would not involve the concept of worship. There is no evidence that uh, prior to the Incarnation, you have the kind of worship that the Incarnate Son would engage in that would be appropriate. Okay, well, I'm talking about... But that's not what this is. That, that's not what okay. Hebrews 1.8 is talking about. Okay, well, post-incarnational. In other words, I agree that this is what you could call post-incarnation. My question mm-hmm. is, does the Son, in his incarnation or after the incarnation, is the Father his God in a way that can be applied to Jesus as God. Well, well, as opposed to human, you, you can't, you, you cannot divide Jesus into two different parts. He is the God Man, uh, and eternally will be the God Man. Okay, but is oh. it not true that? Tr- sure. Oh, am I done? We're yeah, we're out of time. Right. James, it's your turn. Okay, thank you, um, uh, Mr. Navas. Is God's eternality a part of His hupastaseos? Uh, yes, I would agree. Uh, if Jesus is the character of his hypostaseos, is Jesus eternal? Um, no, I don't believe so. So character does not actually mean exact representation. No, it does. So how can Jesus not be eternal if you just already admitted that eternality is a part of his nature? Well, in the same way that I might have, a, let's say, a book that's five years old, and I were to I were, I were to create a reproduction or a copy of that book. We would never say, well, the reproduction, even though it's an exact reproduction, is just as old as the original. So the logic just doesn't apply. So are you withdrawing your statement that eternality is a part of the nature of God? No. You just don't see that the nature of God is different than a book? What I'm saying is that eternality cannot be reproduced. Okay, so then character does not mean exact representation because it says it can't be reproduced, right? No, it does mean exact representation. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, in Psalm 102, 25 to 27, is it your position that the psalmist was not saying that Yahweh, when it says you are the same and your years will not come to an end, is it your position that the psalmist was saying of Yahweh that he will just be the same in the future, but that had nothing to do with the past? Um. No, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying that he, he never comments about God's nature in the past. He just comments on what God is and what he will be. So when it says, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, the Lord that's being spoken of there in Hebrews 1.10, we, we can't drive anything from that as to his eternality or the fact that he had existed. He, he, the, Yahweh could have been created before the beginning from what you're saying. Well, the text doesn't say that. I don't believe that either. Okay, so the application of these words to Yahweh, is it your position that the, that, that Yahweh could create a thousand other creatures 
who could be described in this way? Uh, that's not my position, but I do believe that God could, I guess, theoretically do whatever he wants. He can create as many beings as he chooses to do so. That would be accurately described as the creator of the heavens and the earth who does not change and never perishes. No, but but the point that I made was that the author of Hebrews appropriately applies this text to the Son in light of the Son's role as the one through whom God created the worlds. That's okay. time. Uh, Patrick, your one-minute closing. Okay, um, I do appreciate the interaction with James on this text. Um, I, again, I would re-emphasize and reiterate the point that I would ask everyone listening to reflect upon. If you take any object in the real world, anything, whether it's a book or a document, um, so on and so forth, no matter how old that particular um, object is, if, it's, if, we're, if there's a reproduction of that object, we would never say, it would never follow logically, and it wouldn't even be possible to say that the reproduction is the same age as the original. Age is not something that's transferable in that sense. So in the same way, even though... Jesus is described as an exact reproduction of God's being. Okay, it doesn't logically follow that He is eternal. Um, in other words, without beginning, just as God is without a beginning. The logic doesn't follow. It's it's simply impossible, I would argue, because a reproduction again is not the original. In everyday usage, the word reproduction always implies and means something that came about oh. after the original. Okay. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, James, your one-minute closing. Well, of course, the, the problem with the argument is that God's being is not a book, and it is not something in the, cre in the created order. We saw that Mr. Novice completely contradicted himself. Uh, it, eternality is a part of God's being. If it is exactly reproduced, which is what character means, then Jesus would have to be eternal, but he doesn't believe that, so he just simply won't follow the logic to its, to its conclusion and insists upon applying uh, something about photocopying books uh, to the very nature of God, which completely misses the context that the author has said that Jesus is the outflow, the radiance of his glory. God has eternally been glorious, and therefore the character has that meaning. And I'm sorry, but very clearly the writer of Psalm 102, 25 through 27 was talking about the immutability of Yahweh, and he applies it to the Son. He would never have applied those words to a mere creature. You can say it's fitting all you want, but again, it bring, takes us back to what is this creature that Mr. Novice is presenting to us who is Jesus? Is he truly a god? All right, Patrick, uh, if you're ready to begin your seven-minute presentation of Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. Okay, thank you, Chris. In Colossians 1, 15 through 17, the subject is Jesus, the Son of God, and this is what the author Paul says about the Son of God. He describes him as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he goes on to say, for in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And then he goes on to say, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, this is really important text. It kind of relates to uh, the, the statement made in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, about God creating the worlds through his Son. Okay? Now, James White and other Trinitarians appeal to this text traditionally to prove 
the notion that Jesus himself is the creator. And in fact, in the Forgotten Trinity, page 64, uh, James White says, Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, the eternal creator of all things. And he says the New Testament often speaks of Jesus Christ as the creator. That's the Forgotten Trinity, page 104. And um, on page 110, he describes Jesus as the eternally pre-existent creator of all things. So according to James White and other Trinitarians, this particular text tells us that all things were created by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is therefore God the creator. Um, <clears throat> James White also argues, and I've seen him actually argue this point in his book, in his debate with Greg Stafford, and in his recent debate with Roger Perkins. White claims that for the purpose of teaching that Christ is the creator in God, Paul quite literally exhausts the Greek language to make his point. And in another place in his book, um, on page uh, 58, he says, Paul in Colossians 1:16 through 17 uses the entirety of the Greek language to express the unlimited extent of Christ's creative activity. So this is a point that Dr. White has made repeatedly in his debates, in his book as well. And in his recent debate with Perkins, he says, it says, by, by the Son all things were created, all things created by him and for him. And he says, Paul exhausts the Greek language. He exhausts the number of prepositions he could use to say that Jesus Christ is the creator. Now, I do agree that it's certainly a remarkable thing that, that Paul uh, uses this language of, of Jesus Christ. Um, according to Paul, Jesus is the one in whom all things were created, through whom and for whom. He uses a number of prepositions. But... Um, with all due you know, respect uh, to Dr. White, his claim about Paul exhausting the number of prepositions that he uh, could have used is simply a misrepresentation of, of the facts of the language. Okay? Um, in fact, the very specific terms Paul could have theoretically used to make clear that Christ was the creator, if that's what he intended to communicate, were not used. Okay, though Paul does use a number of prepositions in reference to Christ's uh, role in the creation of all things, in him, through him, for him, Paul does not say that all things were created by Christ. Um, the Greek preposition hupa, which Paul did not use, okay, which he theoretically could have used, would have made absolutely clear that Jesus was the direct creator, the one by whom all things were created. That's the, the translation that James White uses. Um, <clears throat> instead, Paul purposely uses language that plainly conveyed the sense of instrumentality and intermediate agency. En auta, ectiste. Um, by the way, that, that word for um, created in that instance is the passive Greek form, were created. And I'll get back to that point in a minute. But he says, di outu, through him, ice outon, for him. Likewise, Paul did not say that all things came from or out of Christ using the Greek preposition ek, which literally means from or out of. Paul does not use either of those two prepositions. And again, these are the very prepositions that if he would have used, there would have been no controversy or debate. And we could, in fact, say that Jesus was the creator but Paul does not use those prepositions. And contrary to the point that Dr. White tries to argue, Paul does not exhaust the language uh, the, the, in terms of the prepositions. Okay, 
And um, the point, back to the point about the uh, passive Greek form ektiste, when I make the point, and this is a point that uh, Greg Stafford made in his debate with James White uh, a few years back, um, th- what that basically means is that, that Christ is not being presented as the one who's performing the action of creating, but rather the, the, the action of creating is being performed by someone or something outside of him or something or someone distinct from him. And Christ is the one in whom th- these things stand for, uh, created. Um, and just to, uh, to, to, to make a point, N.T. Wright in his, in his commentary on Colossians, uh, 1.16, he says, all that God made, he made by means of Christ. Paul actually says in him, and though the word end can mean by as well as in, it is better to retain the literal translation than to paraphrase as NIV has done. Not only is there an intended parallel with verse 19, which would otherwise be lost, the passive were created indicates, in a typically Jewish fashion, the activity of God the Father working in the Son. To say by here, and at the end of verse 16, could imply not that Christ is the Father's agent, but that he alone was responsible for creation. That's N.T. Wright, and he's one of the most respected, accomplished New Testament scholars in the world today, at least according to many people. Now, um, so when Dr. White claims that this text proves that Jesus is the creator and that everything was created by him, it doesn't really represent what the text actually says. Um, but rather, again, Jesus, and this is consistent with all the other texts that speak about Christ's role in God's creative works. He's always spoken of as the one through whom God created, never as the one who who created all things directly, as if they they were created by him. And that's the language that James White uses. Okay, that's seven minutes. James, if you're ready to begin your seven-minute presentation. Thank you. Of course, James White makes it very, very clear that he is not in any way, shape, or form making Jesus the lone creator or a Unitarian creator. So it is a misrepresentation of my position to even insinuate that I would suggest such a thing. Uh, Jesus is the one through whom all things are made. My point has consistently been, and I've been very clear in stating this many, many times in all the sources that Mr. Novice has quoted, and I notice I was quoted about 152 times, at least my name appears that many times in his book, more than anybody else as far as I can tell. Uh, he should be aware of the fact that I believe that Jesus is the one through whom, and therefore, he cannot be a creature himself, or you would have to translate it, through whom all other things were created, because someone had to make him. There has to be a recognition that Mr. Novice is presenting to us a creature as the means by which all other things are created. And that's the problem with Colossians chapter 1, and this is something that Mr. Novice does not address in his book, is the background of what Paul is arguing against. He is arguing against the proto-Gnosticism that is coming into Colossae, these people, he uses their language, who are, who are presenting this, this group of beings, this pleroma that exists between uh, the creature, the cre- creation and God himself. He is arguing against that, that there are these intermediate beings, and yet it seems Mr. Novice is agreeing with the people that Paul was arguing against, that there are intermediate beings, at least one named Jesus, who is lesser than the Almighty God, but he is the one by which the Almighty God has created all things. That's the very thing that Paul is arguing against, and that's why he calls him the firstborn of all creation. That does not mean first created. That means the one has preeminence over for by him, 
and alto, simple instrumental, it's very clear, were ta-panta created. Now, Mr. Navasa says, well, he's not part of the ta-panta. Then what is he? If he's not part of the ta-panta, then he's God. There's those, the only two categories there are, but he has this intermediate category that is something other than ta-panta. We are going to have to find out who is this person in Mr. Navas's theology. He's going to have to answer these questions. It's, it's easy to sit back and say, oh, the Trinitarians got it all wrong. But he has to answer these questions. Is the son part of Tapanta? If he's not, then he's not created. That means he's eternal. That's what we saw in the preceding text. And then he defines this, the things in heaven. Is the son in heaven? The things upon the earth, visible and invisible. Is the son visible or invisible? Thrones, dominions, lordships, authorities, all things are created by him, Diautu, the exact same language used of God in general in Romans 11.36, Diautu, and unto him, exact same language used of God in Romans 11.36. I would suggest God is there functioning the very way that Mr. Nava says it never functions in the New Testament, speaking of the triune God, but we can talk about that. Um, all things created by him and for him, and he is before all things, not just above in a, in a, in a, in a spatial sense, but before all things, and in him, in this creature, all things hold together. Does he hold himself together? See, these words would make no sense applied to a creature. You can try to get around it all you want, but we are talking about the creator here. And that's why I say he exhausted the language. No, he didn't use hupa. And it's easy to say, well, he could have used this, he could have used that. But again, in light of what he's arguing against and the concept that you have these intermediate beings who are the ones who brought about creation, Paul is saying impossible. You cannot turn Jesus into one of these eons. It's a part of the play Roma. He is the creator of all things, including the very things that the proto-Gnostics believed were evil. Therefore, there would be no reason for them to be worshiping him because that would make him one of the evil demiurges. So when we look at Colossians chapter 1 in its historical context, and we look at the language he uses, pleroma, eon, fullness, etc., etc., all these terms that the proto-Gnostics were using, we go back to J.B. Lightfoot's material and things like that and take a look at the background of those things, when we listen to what Paul's actually arguing against, we find out that very clearly, these again, just as Psalm 102, 25 through 27, was a description of the unchanging God applied to Jesus. Now, how can we hear these words and go, oh yeah, Jesus is a created being. There was a time he didn't exist. He came into a being at a time of, in, in history. But then through him, Everything else was made, um, including, well, the place where he lives, and, and so evidently the invisible, invisible, all these things, all that came into existence by him. So where did he exist before he came, before he created these things? I mean, there just isn't any way to fit these words in. And so this high revelation, this high Christology, once again, forces us back, as I said it would at the beginning of this debate, to ask ourselves the question, who is this Son of God? Who is this prototokos pases titseos found here in Colossians 1.15? Who is this one who by him, tapanta, all things were created? He is either the eternal Son of God, 
who, according to John 19, that makes himself equal with God, who has eternally existed, who is the creator of all things, the instrumental creator, yes, but that doesn't make him anything less because you're either the creator or you're the created. There is no middle ground. The idea that, well, well, but, but that would, that, that would mean the Father wasn't the creator. No, in fact, the scriptures describe Father, Son, and Spirit all involved in the creation. He's either the creator or he is a creation. And I suggest to you that in every one of these passages, to try to read into them a creation, through a creation all things were made, and for a creation all things were made, and this creation is before all things, and in this creation all things hold together. It simply doesn't work. It is not possible. And so that's what we need to focus upon. Who is this Jesus? I want to hear how Mr. Novice applies these words to a creature, a creation, and how that would not undercut Paul's entire argument in this epistle. Thank you. Okay, Patrick, your three-minute rebuttal, if you're ready. Okay, thank you. James White uh, suggested something to the effect that I, based on my argument, I'm basically agreeing with the people whom Paul was writing against, which um, I completely disagree with, of course, because in in this Gnostic or proto-Gnostic system of thought, these eons that James White made reference to were entirely uh, hostile to the the original God whom they believed in. And um, in fact, the in terms of Gnostic belief, the idea was that the, 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 these eons that created the physical world were were evil and going contrary to the uh, the, the God whom the Gnostics, uh, um, you know, believed were existed. And that's certainly not how Jesus is portrayed, but he's portrayed rather as the beloved son of God in whom all things were created. So I don't see any connection between what I'm saying. I'm simply trying to point out what the text explicitly says. I was a little confused when Dr. White, um, he didn't he didn't make any distinction when he was quoting um, the text that in Greek, say, en auta, he just he translated again by him. And then when he said di uh, autu, he used the same preposition in English, by, but it's not the same thing in, in, in Greek. It's not in terms of the language. Um, so the point that I'm making that needs to be appreciated, that it's misleading for Dr. White to say that Jesus is the one by whom all things were created. Because that gives one the impression that he's the creator, that he's the independent soul uh, creator of all things. I know Dr. White would, doesn't agree with that, he, or doesn't believe exactly that way, but that's the impression that the language by him gives. So it makes more sense to translate the, the text uh, literally as in him, through him, and for him. And again, um, Dr. White, he explicitly said, and he emphasized, that Paul used the entirety of the Greek language, which he, Paul did, we know in fact, did not do that. So I'd be curious to find out if Dr. White would like to withdraw that point, because he, again, he gives the impression that Paul used every, every means that he had uh, at his disposal to, to make clear that Jesus is the creator, when there was, there's several other prepositions that he did not use that would have made that point clear. Um, the other thing um, is, as I, I pointed out, that uh, Paul uses the passive Greek form ektiste, which shows that Jesus is not the one performing the action. Something is being performed through him 
by another. And we know from other texts that God created through Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting that, well, since Jesus is the one through whom God created, this, this logically follows that he is um, inferior to the Father. And we know that the Father is greater than Jesus based on Jesus' own words. But the point is, I'm not arguing that's what the logical outcome of that. I'm just arguing okay. that he's saying that he's the creator. I'm saying, no, he's oh. the one through whom God created. Okay, Sorry. that's time. That's okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> okay, James, your, your three-minute rebuttal. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Ectiste does not mean that Jesus is a passive object. Ectiste is in reference to tapanta. It's the tapanta that was created. Mr. Novice is simply misreading the Greek at that point. Uh, secondly, he is trying to force me into Unitarian categories, and I refuse them because Unitarian categories cannot deal with these texts. As I said, I do not believe in a Unitarian creator. I believe that the Father created and the Son created and the Spirit created and they took different roles. The question is, is the one being described in Colossians chapter 1 a creature or the creator? And Mr. Novice just simply won't answer the question. And so I'm going to be very straightforward in my answering. I'm going to tell him right now. The first question I'm going to ask you, is the Son part of the tapanta that the Son creates? And if he's not, then explain how he came to have creation, and because that would violate the, the, the statement that by him and en alto, please, don't, don't, don't tell me that en alto, the translate as by, is not a proper translation. I can show you in every single Greek syntax and lexical source on the planet that that is a proper translation of the instrumental use of en alto, and you can find numerous examples of it in every recognized translation of the Bible, he says, well, that leads to this pro improper uh, assumption. No, only if you start with Unitarian presuppositions, which I deny, does it lead you to those those uh, presuppositions or those conclusions. But the point is this, and it's very, very clear. The one being described here is the creator of all things. He said, well, I don't believe what those guys did because the, the eons were opposed to the ones you got. Not all of them, sir. If you know your Gnosticism, you know the eons and the Pleroma, many of them were very close to God. And very clearly, these proto-Gnostics thought Jesus was one of them. The whole point of Paul's argument is to say that Jesus created the very evil matter that the proto-Gnostics found to be so mis to be reprehensible. That means Paul was saying he'd have to be one of the demiurges. The point is that they believed that there were intermediate beings, and you seem to believe that there are intermediate beings who are involved in creation. And Paul's saying, no, he does exhaust the language to express to us Christ's role. And you cannot tell us that all of creation was made for a creature, that a creature is before all of, all of creation. It just simply doesn't fit in this text. And so, uh, I'm not going to be pushed into Unitarian categories of that would have proven that Jesus was the parentheses, Unitarian, parentheses, closed, creator, because I don't believe in a Unitarian creator. Jesus is the creator. He is the one through whom all things were made, and that means he himself is not a creature. That doesn't lead to Unitarianism if we allow the Bible to speak for itself. Okay, <clears throat> James, you get three minutes to cross-examine Patrick. Mr. Novice, is the one described in Colossians chapter 1 a part of tapanta? Is Jesus a part of what is made in Colossians 1, 16 through 17? No, he is not. Then, do you believe that he was created 
by Jehovah God. Well, if if I may say, um, I don't. It's not my practice to use the language of that he was created by God. Um, in a similar sense that I'm, I, you know, I wouldn't really say that I, I created my son. I wouldn't use that language, but certainly my, the the life of my son was derived from me. And so, in the same way, that's that's how I would describe or understand uh, Christ's sonship. In other words, his life derived from the Father. But I wouldn't really use the word created myself. Was there a time when he did not exist? Yes, in my my view, so, yes. Okay, so you have a intermediate state between creator and tapanta that is inhabited by one creature, the sun? I'm uh, not as sure exactly what you mean, but I don't, uh, I don't, I don't believe that represents what I'm saying. Okay, well, in verse, verse 16, tapanta, in heavens and upon earth, visible, invisible, thrones, lordships, rulers, and authorities, none of that includes Jesus. No, he, he doesn't. So he does. He is not neither visible nor invisible. Oh, he's neither. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Well, he is he in heaven or in earth? Well, certainly now he is in heaven at the right hand of God. Where was he at the time of creation? The time of creation, I believe that Jesus existed in the form of the word that was with God in the beginning. And was the word in the heavenly places? Um, yes, with God. So tapanta entois urinois means all things in the heavens and upon the earth. What, where did you, since, since you say he's not a part of tapanta and tapanta includes heavens and earth, where was he? Where was he at what point? When he was created. Um, because I, if, I because if it's in the heavens and it's on the earth, it's created by Jesus. So, where was Jesus when he was created? Well, I don't believe that all things were created by Jesus, but rather created by God through Jesus. Okay, that's fine. But if Jesus came into existence at a point in time, and yet you said he's not part of Tapanta, but Tapanta is everything in heaven and everything upon the earth. That's what Colossians 1.16 says. I want to find out where this intermediate being was if heaven and earth isn't enough to describe it. Well, the point is that Paul is making a point about Christ's role in the creation of all things. Since he's the one in and through whom God created, he's not speaking to the issue of whether or not Jesus was created. He's emphasizing his role as the one through whom God created. So I agree. There's nothing in the text that says Jesus was created. Okay, that's uh, three minutes. Patrick, it's now your turn, uh, and you have three minutes to cross-examine James. Okay, does this text describe Jesus as... The creator or the one in whom all things were created? Same thing. It's the same there thing. Is no logi- there is no logical or rational difference between the two descriptions you just gave. But even in your own view, isn't there a distinction between the father's role in creation and the son's role? Isn't there some distinction? There is a distinction, but there's still only one creator. There is different roles that each one has taken, but there's still only one creator. Okay. Um, do you still stand by the, your claim that Paul quite literally exhausts the number of prep, uh, prepositions that he uh, could have used, even though he didn't use ek, he didn't I use said, hupa? I said he exhausted the Greek language to express the fact that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, and he did. Okay. Did he use the prepositions ek and hupa? Uh, no, I don't think he needed to. 
Okay, then isn't that a contradiction of your claim that he used all the, the Greek language that he had at his disposal? I said he exhausted the Greek language to express the fact that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. And your complete collapse in recognizing that heaven and earth it, it involves everything illustrates the exact point that I just made. I, I'm okay. sorry you can't see it, but but if if those words are not describing the creator, then nothing would ever describe the creator. Okay, you, so there's no I, distinction. I don't know how else I don't know how else you could say it. So there's no distinction recognized or presented in the New Testament between the creator and the one through whom all things were created? It's the same thing? There is one creator and there are three persons described as being involved in the creation and they take different roles. But there is only one creator who is himself uncreated. So distinctions are made, but not in the sense of you're assuming that creator has to be a Unitarian term. You keep assuming Unitarianism to prove your point. And I, I know you don't see it, but I'm just pointing it out to you. You're assuming it, and that's what the debate is supposed to be about. Okay. Um, but back to the point, uh, again, about what you made about uh, Paul exhausting the Greek language. You said that yes. he exhausted the Greek language, but he didn't use uh, the, these terms uh, that I mentioned. So isn't your statement really would not, not be true? No, sir. It would not be appropriate to describe the son in that way. They take different roles. He did everything that he could to demonstrate to the audience to whom he was speaking that the one that those protonostics were making an eon, intermediate being, was not an intermediate being and could not be considered to be a worthy object of worship as an intermediate being according to the backgrounds of protonosticism at that time. He used their very language against them. And he exhausts the language in so doing. He does not have to use every single possible word to exhaust the language. Okay. okay. Now, if I, oh, go ahead. Okay. That was uh, three minutes. And uh, Patrick, or sorry, James, you now have one minute for your closing on this passage. As long as we do not assume Unitarianism, which Mr. Navas is doing over and over and over again, we can see the beauty of this text and the force of this text. No mere creature. Mr. Novice could not answer our question because his Jesus had to be in heaven. And yet that means, according to Colossians 1.16, that if it's in heaven or it's upon earth and it is the creation, ta panta, then Jesus created it. Mr. Novice doesn't believe that. So I, I don't know if he just can't see it or he just won't accept it, whatever it is. It's right there in front of him. But when you bring Unitarian presuppositions to a Trinitarian text that has come from the revelation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, written by experiential Trinitarians who themselves have experienced these divine persons. The results are going to be, well, where was Jesus when he was created? Well, he was in heaven. Well, this says Tapanta is in heaven, and that means Jesus created it. Well, I don't know. That's what happens when you have those wrong presuppositions. And, Patrick, your one-minute closing. Okay, uh, James White said uh, he made a point about the preposition N, uh, used in reference to Christ, and he said that, you know, according to all these, these lexical sources and so on and so forth, it can be translated by. But that's a point that I myself made when I quoted from N.T. Wright, who specifically said, although N can be translated by, it's better to retain the original. So I already knew and fully appreciated the point that the preposition N can be translated by, but the point is that it's better, as N.T. Wright points out, to translate it literally in this case, because the by is misleading insofar as it does not communicate 
the specific nuance that Paul was trying to get across. Paul's not saying that Jesus is the creator, but the one in whom all things stand created. Um, secondly, um, wanted to make the point um, in response to James White. Uh, he said that, uh, you know, he, uh, or excuse me, I need to make the point that, well, in this text, in this context, Paul, Jesus cannot be part of the all things that were created because he's the one in and through whom all things were created. So he's okay. not part of that. Okay. Now, just a brief interjection. Uh, there was a, a little bit of confusion on all three of our parts as to whether or not uh, Patrick had had his three-minute rebuttal during this round, uh, during this text. Uh, and so um, I, I'm pretty sure it turns out that he did get his three-minute rebuttal, but because James, were I, uh, James and I were a little unsure, um, this conversation came up. Hey, hey, uh, Chris. Yeah. I'm looking at my notes here, and they're really short for what they would normally be. Um, I think there was a three, but I'm not sure. And if Patrick was feeling that there might not have been that, um, let's put it this way. I'm willing to give him a three if he wants to take it. Well, I'm willing to give that to him as well, but I just, I want to point out that I think that it was after Patrick's three minute rebuttal where I got all confused and then it was. That's what I thought too. That's what I thought too. I would just feel badly if, if, if we were wrong about that. Uh, I'll leave it to you, Patrick. Patrick, are you not, are you not, re- are you not remembering one? Or are you just confused um, I, I like don't, we are? but I'm, I'm fine with going on. If I could just sort of reiterate one last point, and that's where I'll end, if you don't mind. Sure. How about I give you an extra minute on your closing? Would that work? Um, sure, please. Okay. Thank you. You're very welcome. Go okay. ahead. Okay. The, the last point that I was trying to make is that, um, okay, Jesus Christ, it's impossible for him to be part of the all things that are mentioned in this context, okay? And the, 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 that's an easy question to answer because... He's the one in and through whom all these things that Paul has in mind came into existence. Okay, I agree that the text doesn't speak about Jesus Christ as a creation. Um, I know that Jesus, or I would argue that Jesus came into existence and derived his life from the Father based on other texts um, that are, are that appear in the Bible. Jesus himself says that the life that he has in himself was granted to him by his father. Now, that's not the type of thing you would think that the eternal creator of all things without beginning would say. How could God, the Almighty, ever say that the life he had in himself was granted to him by someone else? But but the text that is emphasizing Christ's role in the creation of all things. He's the one in, through, and for whom all things came into existence. But he's not the one by whom all things created. He does not use the prepositions hupa, nor does he use the word ek, which would have communicated that point. Okay. Okay, so now we move on to the final segment of the debate, uh, the final text, which is the I am statements in the gospel, or supposedly I am statements in the gospel of John. And James, you have seven minutes to begin. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, again, I could not even read all the texts uh, in the seven minutes uh, and do them justice. Uh, this is an argument where, once again, you're going to have two sides. You're going to have one side that looks at John and says, okay, we have the prologue of John, we have the end of John, we have the themes that John has developed. If we allow John to speak as John, is there something special in his use of the Greek phrase ego aimi? And I think without a doubt that unless we cut them up, unless we look at, well, let's just look at this verse. It might mean this. and Let's not look at its relationship to this verse here because then that, that, that starts building a cumulative case. I say to Mr. Novice, that's what he did in his book. 
He cut them up into parts. In fact, he dealt with all of John 824 without even noticing or mentioning it's a part of the same context as 858. It doesn't even deal with 858 until he's dealt with other passages. So he's cut them up into little parts, and that's how that's how not to deal with the text of Scripture. Let's look at the text. John 8:24. Jesus says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that ego I me, you will die in your sins. There's something about this phrase that is important to understand and believe, or you can die in your sins. So obviously it can't just be a, unless I am something, what is in the background here? It has something to do with salvation itself. And the Jews pick up on this because they say to him, well, who are you? Who are you making yourself out to be? And they had not realized what Jesus was actually speaking to them about. And the, the conversation gets stronger and stronger and stronger until finally Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews recognize this is a, this is a claim of, of, of existence before the days of Abraham. You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to him, pray to you, prin Abraham genesai ego aimi. Before Abraham was born, I am. The Jewish response is not just, oh, we're just so mad at you because you've been mean to us. Therefore, because of this, they picked up stones to throw at him, which is, of course, the punishment for blasphemy, which, of course, we're going to see repeated in John chapter 10, etc., etc. And Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So you have this use of ego aimi, and the Jews pick up on it, and they see it as blasphemous in John chapter 8. And then... Just a few chapters later, in a, in a text that a lot of people don't see, in John chapter 13, verse 19, again it comes up, and this time, notice what Jesus says. He says, from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that ego I me. And I remember when I first recognized the background to this. If you go back to the Old Testament, you'll be able to see that Jesus is drawing directly from the words of Yahweh. Remember, John 13 is just a matter of verses after John 12:41, where Jesus has identified Jesus as Yahweh. And here, Jesus quotes from the very words of Yahweh in the context of Yahweh's special ability to know and predict the future, because only the true God can do that. He says, from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. And if you take out the when it does occur, in John 13, it's hina pistuseta hati ego aimi. You go back to Isaiah 43.10, ironically the very verse from which Jehovah's Witnesses get their name. And what does it say? Hina pistuseta hati ego aimi. The exact same words. Again, when when scholars look at this, they recognize when the New Testament writer is specifically drawing from the Old Testament and hear Jesus, who would have known the Old Testament like the back of his hand, no matter what you believe about him, takes the words of Yahweh in the unique context of Yahweh demonstrating he's the one true God over against false gods and applies them to himself. And then we have, and I think it's it's it really, it, it cinches the case. When the soldiers come to take Jesus, now Mr. Novice assumes that these soldiers knew all about Jesus. They were the same soldiers that came to take him before. How he knows any of that, I don't know. But you have men coming to take Jesus, to arrest Jesus, and they're not identified. We don't know who they are. But so Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now listen to John. Just let John speak. Put aside your Unitarian presuppositions just long enough to hear this. So they answered, 
Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, Ego Aimi. Now then John stops and he says, Now Judas, also who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, so John even belabors the point, when he said to them, Ego Aimi, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now it is amazing to me when people try to get around this. And they don't see that John, in all of these verses, as a cumulative argument, is using this phrase. It goes back to the use of Anahu. We find it in Isaiah 43.10. We find it in Isaiah 41. It's used in all these places. They want to go, well, you know, in John 18, well, it was just his moral purity. Soldiers fall back when in, in the place in the, in the in the presence of moral purity all the time, which is why. Well, wait a minute. It never happened in all the rest of Jesus' experience, and yet he was morally pure during all of that, wasn't he? And weren't the if these were the same soldiers, weren't they in the presence of moral purity before? But it didn't cause them to stumble then. No, John is clearly communicating something to us that if we will just allow. All of his words to stand together, not cut them up into little parts and say, well, it might mean this here and it might mean that there. If we allow John to speak as John and allow him to communicate to us, we see that he's drawing from that beautiful term, Anahu, the self-identification of Yahweh in Isaiah, especially in the trial of the false gods. It also appears in some of the minor prophets, and he's applying it to Jesus. This is perfectly consistent with John 12:41. It's perfectly consistent with John 1, 1. It's perfectly consistent with John 17, this one who had glory in the presence of the Father before the world was, and it's perfectly consistent with Thomas's conclusion then, when seeing the risen Lord, he says, my Lord and my God, not a secondary being, not a lesser being, not one who is but a creature, but his Lord and his God, Kurios and Theos, going back to the Shema, as we saw in First Corinthians chapter 8. The beauty of the New Testament revelation all comes together as we see who Jesus really is. Thank you very much. Okay, Patrick, if you're ready, your seven-minute presentation. Okay, thank you. Um, according to James White, um, Jesus' use of these ego I me statements, in, particularly in the Gospel of John, um, uh, really represent a case of Jesus invoking what James White calls a euphemism for God's name. In other words, according to White and other Trinitarians, I am is, a, is another way of, of saying or expressing God's name, or it's another name for God. Now, uh, many Trinitarians tried to draw upon Exodus 3.14, where according to most English translations, God says in response to Moses' inquiry about his name, I am that I am. Now, that's really problematic because um, in all likelihood that the Hebrew underlying that translation really doesn't convey the sense of I am, but rather I will be or I shall prove to be. And you can look at almost any uh, good Bible translation that has footnotes and they'll normally draw your attention to the point that 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 text can be translated um, I will be or I will become. So I am doesn't even really reflect what the nuance is in the original Hebrew of Exodus 3.14. Um, but some Trinitarians have appealed to the Septuagint where God says uh, to Moses, Ego I me ha on, which literally means or can be translated I am the being or I am the existing one. Now, the problem with, with an appeal to that text, to, in other words, to argue that Jesus is claiming that title or name for himself, is that ego I me in that instance is not God's name, but rather ha-on. It's just as if, it's, it's the same type of thing as if, uh, 
if I were to say, you know, I am the teacher or I am the apologist and somebody taking that statement and trying to find significance in the words I am, when really the true reference point is uh, I am the, te- is the teacher or the apologist. And so there is no connection that can be made with Exodus 3:14 in either the Hebrew or the Septuagint. Now, James White makes the argument that um, the, the use of ego I me in, or any who in Hebrew um, in the text of Isaiah is uh, what Jesus is really trying to invoke. Now, this is extremely problematic. Let's just look at one particular text that James White tries to use to support that text. Okay, in Isaiah 41.4, the text says, this is God speaking, Who has raised the righteous one from the east, and who has planned and done it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? Now, immediately after that second question, God says, I, Jehovah, am the first and the last. I am he. Okay, so what James White does in that instance is he argues that when God says, I am he, Hebrew, anihu, Greek, ego, I, me, that that's God is basically is, is expressing his name. In other words, that's a name for God. But all you have to do is look at the text, and all that's, that's happening in that instance is that God is simply answering the rhetorical question that he asked in the previous verses. Who raised up the righteous one from the east? Who has planned and done it from the beginning? So when he says, I, Jehovah, am the first and the last, I am he, he simply identified himself as the one who raised the righteous one from the east. The one who has planned and done it, calling forth generations from the beginning. So in no way is it used as some kind of name for God. It's simply God's way of identifying himself as the one des- uh, described in the previous verse. So to try to draw upon, and that really is representative of all the other Isaiahic texts where God uses that expression, ego I me. It's an, he's in the context. Just look at it. Look at the previous verses. He's simply answering the question that he rhetorically asked. So in John 8:24, um, I absolutely agree with Dr. White that there's great significance to be found in these ego I me statements. John 8:24, he tells the Jews, uh, "I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that ego I me, that I am He, you will die in your sins." But notice, they certainly, the Jews certainly did not understand Jesus to mean that He was God or that He was claiming God's name, because immediately after they ask Him, "Well, who are you?" And in response to that, Jesus says, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Now, in terms of background, let's let's think about what the the Bible specifically says about what we should believe about Jesus' identity. Back to Matthew 16, um, Peter identifies him. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, The Gospel of John itself ends, or in its uh, concluding chapters, says these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing these things, you would have life in his name. Now, it's interesting because that particular text is is um, almost like a perfect reflection of what Jesus says to the Jews in 824. In this case, Jesus says it negatively. Unless you believe that ego I me, that I am he, there is an identity that he has in mind, you'll die in your sins. Well, the Gospel of John tells us, well, these things were written so that you would believe what about Jesus' identity? that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you'll have life in his name. There's a very, uh, in other words, it's, it's almost like these texts are symbiotic in the sense that Jesus emphasizes they don't believe, they'll die in their sins. 
And John says positively, if you, uh, I wrote these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. So I do believe that, and that when Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, he has in mind, unless you believe that I am the Messiah, that I am the Christ. Um, in the previous uh, verses, in 8.12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Okay. In John chapter 6, he identifies himself as the living bread that has come down from heaven. And in other verses in, uh, previous to that statement, Jesus identifies himself as the one who was sent by God, as God's son, and so on and so forth. So that's what Jesus has in mind. Unless you believe that I am he, that is that I am the Messiah, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of God, I am the one who has been sent by God. And all those means can be wrapped up in that particular statement because they all essentially communicate the same connotation. Now, another point that, that is interesting to consider is that consider the usage of ego I me and other uh, the other gospels? Okay, now in Mark chapter 13, Luke 21, Jesus says is, is this is the same account. In Mark 13:6, Jesus began to say to his disciples, "See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am He, ego I me, and they will lead many astray." Okay, it's the same uh, expression used in the Gospel of John. Luke 21:8, "See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying." I am he. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you go to the, the Matthew's version of it, he says, can I just finish this last point? Sure. The, yeah, the time see is that no, <laughs> See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Ego, I me, ha, Christos. They will, and they will lead many astray. So Matthew uh, makes explicit what is implicit in Mark and Luke. Okay. He's the Christ. All right. Thank you. James, your three-minute rebuttal. Uh, well, first of all, I spent the first few minutes talking about Exodus 3.14, which I did not cite. I have always said that you have to get to Exodus 3.14 via the Anahu text in Isaiah. Um, then, uh, secondly, no one is claiming that every use of ego, I mean, no matter where it's found, is meant to communicate the deity of Christ. As I said, this is something John's communicating to us, and we have to allow John in his context to do so. And ironically, that's the exact thing that Mr. Novice uh, ignored responding to, was the cumulative effect of these texts. He says, well, he's, he's saying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, of course, this is the same text that has told us that when Jesus said, in John 5, that he is doing what the Father does on the, on the Sabbath, calling God his own Father, that makes himself equal with God. And in John chapter 19, we have a law by which he ought to die. And what was that law? It was the law against blasphemy, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. So what does Son of God mean in the Gospel of John? It doesn't mean the Unitarian, lesser-than-true deity, something less, some creature that came into existence at a time in the past type of, of, of a god. Um, when he tries to get around the uh, the Anahu ego I me context, he didn't touch John 13:19 because he can't. The language is too clear. Jesus is obviously taking the words of Yahweh and applying them to himself. But he says, "Oh well, that's not really a that's not really significant because God's just identifying Himself as the one who's done things." Again, reading out of the text the meaning that is there. Look at Isaiah 41:4. Look at Isaiah 43:10. Look at Isaiah 45:18. Um, I am the Lord. I, Yahweh, am the first and with the last. Ego, I, me. Anahu, I am he. Well, does first and last also not mean anything? Well, he's just identifying himself as the first God who ever did anything, or the last God who did everything. Seriously, these are, these are words that the Jews fully understood, and that's why they picked up on these things. And when you look at Isaiah chapter 45 especially, man, that, that one is, is, is very, very strong. For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create empty, he formed it to be inhabited, 
I am Yahweh, and there is no other. How does the Septuagint end that? Ego Imi. Kai uk esten eti. Ego Imi, I am, is taking the place of I am Yahweh in the Hebrew, and there is no other besides me. And someone's actually going to argue that that's not a significant phrase, that that's not what the Jews picked up on in, 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 uh, in, in John chapter 8, verse 58, that, that, and that those soldiers fallen back on the ground when Jesus uses the same term? Ah, it was just moral purity. That They stumbled in the dark. I'm sorry. This is where, again, with such clarity, we see the Unitarian assumptions reading out of the text the revelation that is so clearly there. And it it literally breaks my heart when I see this kind of thing happening, when the words are right there in front of us. But, of course, it's the Spirit of God that has to make those words to come alive in our hearts. But they're right there in front of us. It's very clear. Okay. Patrick, your three-minute rebuttal. Okay, in reference to John thirteen nineteen, I definitely like to cover all the texts. It's just a little bit difficult to manage the time. It says, uh, when he had washed their feet and put out their outer garments and returned his, resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Ego I me. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And that's a quote from Psalm 41, 9. I am telling you this now. Before it comes to pass, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that ego I me, that I am he. Now, James White, uh, he tries it, he takes that particular test and he sort of wants to remove the expression before it comes to pass and line it up with uh, the text in Isaiah. But that's the very point that, uh, that explains or helps us understand what Jesus meant by ego I me in this instance. Because notice that he quotes the scripture. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it comes to pass, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. In other words, what Jesus appears to be saying in this instance is that before this, this, uh, the fulfillment of this text comes to pass, you'll know that I am he. In other words, you'll know that I am the Messiah, that I am the one in whom this text has fulfillment. And James White said something about reading out of the text what isn't there or something to that effect. But I, like I said, when I, when I was talking about the text in Isaiah, I'm just making the point that, which is really a self-evident point, that God is not using the word, the words ego I me as a euphemism for his name, as Wyatt claims, but it's simply an answer to the question. Consider again, Isaiah 43, uh, 10. He says, uh, who among them can declare this and cause us to hear former things? Let them give their witnesses that they may be justified or let them say hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, says Jehovah and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Ego I me or Hebrew Annie who again, he's simply answering the question who among them can declare this and cause us to hear former things. Jehovah says it is I, ego I me, or I am the one, I am he. It's simply an answer to the question that he himself asked and not a name of God. Um, let's see, uh, I can also fin- uh, um, emphasize the point that, like as I, I was going back to uh, um, Luke and Mark's account where Jesus uses the expression ego I me. Well, Matthew explicitly makes clear to us that Jesus has in mind his Messiahship. And that's just further evidence that proves yeah, there is a, absolutely a cumulative take case going on um, in reference to Jesus' use of the ego I me statements. He means that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, 
He is the one in whom this text has fulfillment. In reference to uh, John 18, where the soldiers fall back to the ground when Jesus said, I am he, and there he's simply identifying himself as Jesus, whom they were looking for. Am I done? Yeah, you are. Oh, okay. Okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> All right. Uh, Patrick, you have three minutes to cross-examine James. Okay, Dr. White. Um, in your view, is it possible that in John 8:24, when Jesus said, unless you believe that... I am he, you will die in your sins. Do you think it's possible that he meant, unless you believe that I am the Messiah? Only if you take John 8.24 in separation from 8.58, 13, 19, and 18.5 through 6. And I uh, don't believe that Paul, uh, Paul, John intended his gospel to be chopped up into pieces and interpreted in that way. So um, there are all sorts of possible interpretations if we ignore the themes and the arguments that are developed by the author. Uh, so if you just take 824 by itself, it could mean all sorts of things. It's when you take 824 with 858, 1319, 185 through 6 that you see what John is intending. Okay, but isn't it, is it not true that in order to avoid dying in our sins that we have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? That's one of the things. Uh, but if you believe that Jesus is a political Messiah, as the Jews were expecting, that wouldn't be enough. I mean, look at the number of people who believe that Jesus was the Messiah right there in John chapter 8. I mean, it says it says right afterwards, uh, what was it, verse 29, just off the top of my head, many believed in him, but that's the aorist form of belief. When Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed, you shall know the truth, truth shall make you free, they become angry. By the end of the chapter, they're picking up stones to stone him. So obviously there can be false belief. Okay, but does does not John tie... Uh, our prospect of having life with belief in Jesus as the Messiah in John 20? Uh, as the Christ, the Son of God. And it's what, it's what Son of God means that you and I don't agree with. You, you believe Son of God is some intermediate creature that came into existence sometime in the past that doesn't exist in heaven or earth. Uh, I believe Son of God is defined by the Gospel of John is when he, when Jesus called God his own Father, making himself equal with God, fits perfectly with Philippians chapter 2. and John chapter 19, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be what? Not the Son of Man, but the Son of God. Okay, but how does that particular text prove that Son of God means Jesus is himself God? It says that um, we have a law against someone claiming to be the Son of God. But I don't see where does it say where, that where, where, that means he's well, I, I can't I can't ask you a question, but I would simply ask where is that law in the Old Testament? It's called the law against blasphemy. The Jews understood that the use that he was making of Son of God made him equal with God. Didn't make him the Father, but it made him truly deity, and therefore he was committing blasphemy. And so I do not believe that a person can have eternal life who believes in Jesus as a political savior or as an angel or as a creature or any of those things, that's the whole point of John 8:24. You will die in your sins. Okay, but isn't there a distinction between being equal with God and being God? Uh, again, if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, there's a difference between being the Father and being the Son. And uh, we believe in the distinction between the Father and the Son. They share the one essence that is God that is unlimited and eternal. Okay. Now back to my original question. Um, I wasn't quite. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, yeah, that was that was time. If you want to make a statement in your closing or in response to one of James' questions, you probably can. But in any case, um, James, it's now your turn. You have three minutes to cross-examine Patrick. Okay, Patrick. Uh, why did the Jews pick up stones to stone Jesus at the end of John chapter eight? Um, because of his claim that 
he had been in existence before Abraham was born. What law was he breaking? Um, he wasn't breaking any law to my knowledge, but that claim simply uh, resulted in this violent reaction on the part of the Jews because he was a man 30, 30 some odd years of age claiming to have been in existence before the, the, the father of their nation existed 2,000 years in the past. So Certainly Jews enough just... So, so Jews stone really old people, or were they picking up stones because they believed he was committing blasphemy? They picked up stones because he claimed to have been in existence before Abraham, who Jesus is only 32, 33 years old. Abraham lived 2,000 years in the past. Do they stone angels? Do, do, do the Jews, do Jews stone Jews? angels? Yeah. Uh, I don't know of any text that says anything like that. But the angels would have existed uh, back then, too. So if he was an angel, they would have stoned him if he said that, right? Mm, well, he's a man, okay. and he's standing before them. All right. Um, in Isaiah 45, 18, uh, at the end of the verse, uh, ego imi is used in the Greek Septuagint, taking the place of what is found in the Hebrew text, which is Yahweh. Ani Yahweh. Uh, do you find that to be significant in any way, shape, or form, or is this just simply self-identification again? Um, I believe it is self-identification. In other words, I am he, that is, I am Yahweh. But when, why did the Greek translators render Ani Yahweh as ego imi if this was not something more than mere, oh, it's me, I'm one of many, but it's me. Perhaps in, because in their mind and from the context, it was absolutely clear that that's what God meant. I see. The, uh, the, the soldiers fell back upon the ground. Um, do you believe this is because of the great moral purity of Jesus? That the, that was, that when he said, ego I me, they just, they just sensed in the darkness of the garden great moral purity? No, I don't believe that's why they fell back. Why they fall back? I believe that they fell back in all likelihood is, is as a result of the power that Jesus exerted over them. I think it was a miraculous uh, um, manifestation, um, and it was basically his way of communicating to them that he was going to surrender to them voluntarily. In other words, he, he they didn't have any power over him, and he was demonstrating that by causing them to fall, I think, I believe. So Jesus knocked them over by saying, ego imi, to show that he was not going to resist them? No, I don't believe that the, his ego I me were the reason, is, is the reason why they fell. I see. Okay. The text doesn't say because he said this. It just says when he said this. Okay. Uh, Patrick, it's now your time to close. You have one minute. Okay. In reference to the ego I me, I am he statements uh, of Jesus in the Gospel of John, if you simply look at the context in every single instance where that expression is used, it is entirely clear and entirely consistent with what the Bible and what the Gospel of John says overall about what we are to believe about Jesus. Okay, In John 8, 24, when Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, um, well, the, 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 the most immediate thought that comes to mind is if you go back to verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And as I, as I mentioned in my uh, earlier um, statement, that um, Jesus, he, he says a lot about who he is in the Gospel of John previous to John chapter 8. And I'd also have to make the point that if the Jews understood ego I me to be a name of God, 
well, why, after Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, why did they say, well, who are you? Clearly, there was some ambiguity in the sense that they, they weren't clear in what he meant. I believe John knows what he meant, and Jesus did, but... Okay. James, your one-minute closing? Just follow John. Allow John to speak for himself. In the beginning was the Word, and was with God, the Word was God. This is the same one who then in John chapter 5 is in perfect unity with the Father. He does everything he sees the Father doing. No creature could ever do that. Now in John 8... He identifies himself with the I am. In John 13, 19, he quotes the very words of Yahweh and applies them to himself in an absolute unique way that no mere creature, no matter how exalted, ever could. And when Jesus says to the Jews, to the soldiers, I am, John repeats it twice to make sure we know that when he said ego I me, which has been back there in 824, and it's back there in 858, and it's back there in 1319, when he said ego I me, they fell upon the ground. Jesus isn't casting some spell on somebody. Jesus isn't exerting some power. John is communicating to us the reality of the fact of Jesus' self-revelation of his true identity. Okay, uh, so that was all five texts or families of text, and then we've agreed to have five-minute closing statements. And so, James, if you're ready, I'll start your five-minute timer as soon as you begin. All right, thank you very much to both uh, Mr. Date and Mr. Novice uh, for the uh, period of time we've spent uh, this evening, and I hope that the listeners have been edified. There is obviously much more that we could discuss. There are other texts that, are, that would be vitally important to address Philippians chapter 2, for example, one of the most beautiful texts presenting the eternal nature of Jesus and, and uh, so on and so forth. But again, I, I just want to reiterate what I said at the beginning. The doctrine of the Trinity is based upon believing in all of Scripture, the Scripture alone and all of Scripture. And when you allow Scripture to speak for itself, it teaches us there is one true God, but introduces us to three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it describes, especially the Son, the Spirit's deity and personality is derived from his relationship with the Father and the Son, which makes sense, because as Jesus said, he is not coming to testify himself, but of Jesus. The description of the scriptures, as we have seen in these five texts tonight, of the Son, as the Son, can not be applied to a creature. Now, I have yet to get a clear answer from Mr. Novice as to exactly what the pre-incarnate son was like. Well, he was the word. Well, what is the word? Where was the word existing? When did the word come into existence? What is his role? What's his relationship to angels? And maybe from his perspective, we can't know. Maybe the Bible isn't sufficient to answer these things. It seems to me in reading Mr. Novice's book, and it's a lengthy book, in going all through that, over and over again, he kept saying, we don't know, we don't know, it could be this, it could be that. And always warring against dogmatism. But then Mr. Novice is extremely dogmatic about one thing, and that is it can't be the Trinity. It's got to be some form of Unitarianism, and maybe Jesus preexisted, maybe he was just a plan, I don't know, we really can't tell. It's a form of theological agnosticism, is what it is. We don't know. And it seems like he's saying, well, I just don't think we can answer these questions. But the reality is we have seen in these five instances, in these five texts, We've seen the Unitarian position read out of the text that which does not fit with its presuppositions and make the text into something that 
is not a clear revelation whatsoever. I mean, what was John up to putting all those ego imi things in there when we have Isaiah 45:18 and 41:4 and 43:10 quoting Isaiah 43:10 of Jesus? Why would John do that if he wasn't trying to communicate something to us? And so we need to keep in mind what I said at the beginning. Who is Jesus? There are two positions being presented tonight. You cannot walk into this and say, well, I'm just going to talk about, I'm just going to say you're wrong. Because Mr. Novice, at the, in his opening statement, said, I'm a Christian. He claims to be a Christian. That means he has a positive position of Jesus. And what your positive position is has to be consistent with the way that you interpret Scripture. And we have seen, I think probably the clearest point was in the cross-examination on Colossians chapter 1. When I asked Mr. Novice, all right, this Jesus that you're presenting to us, that you want us to believe in, um, where does, does, is he in heaven or in earth? If he's in the heavens, Paul said, if it's in the heavens and it's something that's created, tapanta, Jesus made it. If it's in the earth, Jesus made it. If it's visible, Jesus made it. If it's invisible, Jesus made it. Well, what is Jesus then? Is he visible? Is he invisible? Is he in heaven? Is he in earth? Is he some intermediate being that's in some interspatial plane someplace that, that's not mentioned? You see, that, that's where the presuppositions come. I don't know where they've, they've come from. I've, I've listened to Mr. Novice's story. It seems that he was first exposed to, to views of Jehovah's Witnesses and things like that. It, he certainly quotes many Jehovah's Witnesses in his book. And, and, and in fact, it's interesting. I noticed in his book over and over again, Trinitarian apologists were quoted. Not once was a Unitarian apologist quoted even though he quoted many Unitarian apologists uh, like uh, like Professor Badoon and people like that, who are clearly Unitarian apologists. Greg Stafford, um, a fellow that I've, I've, I've debated before Sir, uh, from, from England, um, uh, Sir Anthony Buzzard. Uh, where are these presuppositions come from? I don't know, but they came out very clearly, and that's what's been very helpful about the debate. So again, I thank both of you for your time, but I say to the listeners, you have to be able to consistently answer the question, who is Jesus? And in the text we've seen tonight, there is no way that the one described in the words of inspired scripture could be a mere creature on that side of the creator-creation divide. He has to truly be divine in the fullest sense. And that's why we believe in the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, James. Patrick, if you're ready, you have five minutes uh, for your closing statement. Okay, I would like to uh, thank James White for his willingness to uh, interact on these matters. It's true that there's a lot more that can be said. Uh, I had a little bit difficulty managing the time, and I do apologize if I went over <clears throat> my time limit in a few instances. Um, James White said something to the effect that in my book I say, you know, I don't know this, or we don't really know, you know, about who Jesus is. If I if I understood him correctly, but that doesn't really reflect uh, what comes through in my book, if anybody reads it, you'll see that I'm very clear and very um, specific about what I, as a Christian, believe about Jesus. And I stated in the beginning, as a Christian, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe that he is the son of the living God. And all, all it is is that I simply interpret those uh, expressions, I understand those expressions according to a normal, common sense understanding of human language. Um, it's not that I'm dogmatic about denying the Trinity. The reason why I don't believe the Trinity is simply because the Bible itself never teaches the doctrine in the same way that it teaches 
other doctrines, like the fact that Jesus is the Christ, like the fact that Jesus died for our sins, the fact that God raised him from death to life and exalted him to his right hand. These are all things that the Bible explicitly teaches in a very clear and in a very consistent way. So the problem with the Trinity, in my view at least, is that given the emphasis that Trinitarians place on this teaching, um, there, it, it, it's not consistent in the sense that the Bible is very forthright and very clear when it's trying to make a point about what we should believe, what is necessary. And so I do find it um, remarkable that given the fact that the Trinity is so important, and according to Trinitarians, it's something that we have to believe in order to, to have salvation, I do find it um, extraordinary that the biblical writers never made it a specific point to tell us that God is a trinity. Uh, back to 1 Corinthians 8. Again, I would, I would make the point that if Paul wanted us to believe that God was more than one person, that God was Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he very easily could have done so. He could have said there's one God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Instead, he says what I say. There is one God, the Father. Now, it's not, a, it's not a matter of some kind of unwarranted presupposition on my part. I'm just simply accepting what Paul said. There is one God, the Father. And so I, with Paul and the other biblical writers, would identify the one God as the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that God is his Father. I believe that God sent him into the world literally to save humanity out of this condition of uh, mortality. And I do believe that through belief in Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God, we can have life in his name. In terms of the, the, the issue of whether or not Jesus is a creation, my, my point is that I simply use the language that the Bible itself uses. Um, I mentioned earlier that Jesus himself tells us that the life he has in himself is that which has been granted to him by his father. Okay, So that, according to just a normal understanding of human language, means that G the life that he had in himself is not something that he's always possessed, but it was something that was granted or given to him by his father. That is not the type of language we would ever expect for the almighty God to say that his life was granted to him by someone else. So I, I do not believe that Jesus is eternal in the sense that he never had a beginning to his life because according to his own words, the life he has was given to him by God. And in the same way, we can also live through our faith in Christ. We depend upon him for uh, him to literally rescue us from the consequences of sin and uh, death itself. Um, there's a text that I'd like to quote by Jesus himself in John chapter 7, where I'd, I'd ask everybody to think about this. Okay, if Jesus is himself, the almighty God in the flesh, this is God speaking, how can almighty God say the following? Jesus says in 7.16 of the Gospel of John, My teaching is not my own, but belongs to the one who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. 
Take a look at that text carefully. Notice how Jesus specifically tells us his teaching is not his own. If anybody wants to do the will of God, that person will know whether the teaching is either from God or whether um, Jesus is teaching on his own authority. Okay. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Oh, so I was just going to say that in that instance, Jesus makes a distinction. Either the teaching is, is from himself and is not valid and he's seeking his own glory, or the teaching is from God and he truly represents the one who sent him. Okay. Um, I just wanted to point out, I, I gave you a little bit of extra time there at the end because uh, I wanted to let you finish your point. Um, Thank you. And it, it, yeah, no problem. In any case, uh, I just want to tell you guys, you've both given us a lot to think about, uh, my listeners and myself. The time has been very edifying for me, and I'm sure it will be for my listeners as well. And I just want to thank you both so much for your time and for your candor. Thank you very much, thank Chris. You. It, was, it was enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. White. Thank you. Okay, well, that concludes the debate. Uh, I have my thoughts, which maybe I'll share in the future, and I hope you'll share with me your thoughts by emailing me or by posting them on my Facebook page. Uh, Next episode should be the interview with Mike Lacona. So until then...